Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. Good physics day, everyone. What if I told you that you could do velocity, acceleration, friction, rotations, impulse and momentum, pressure, sound, color, and magnetic field labs all with a single measurement device. And what if I told you that almost every student is walking into the classroom with their own device already in hand? Welcome to Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory's Physics with Phones curriculum. By linking technological elements with everyday activities, students can actively contribute to in-person and virtual learning environments. This is now possible by exploiting the supercomputers and powerful sensor systems in the phones that most students carry to class every day. Each lesson details activities using built-in smartphone sensors to illustrate key physics concepts, including elevation, g-force, and angular velocity. Applications such as FIFOX and Physics Toolbox make it possible to access this supercomputer in our pockets. David Rakestraw, a senior science advisor at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab, has put together many lessons that are freely available online. He's here on our show today to talk about how we got involved with this technology, what sensors our students can access, and how we can use these in our classes. And this may be a, a low barrier, low budget way to introduce some new activities into the classroom, to maybe fill in some gaps with measurements that we'd always hoped to be able to do, but maybe we didn't have the equipment for, or to maybe even start thinking about all the other opportunities that, that this could provide. So great interview. I learned so much about the phone and how it takes these measurements and why it takes these measurements and how we can get access to them. Uh, so this was a great one for me, and I hope that you really enjoy and find some great value. So I'm speaking with David Rakestraw, a senior science advisor at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab in California. A multi-program national security laboratory, its primary stated mission is to enhance the nation's defense and reduce the global threat from terrorism and weapons of mass destruction. Uh, this doesn't sound like a Physics Alive episode right now, does it? Prior to the LLNL, he spent 12 years at Sandia National Laboratories, where he engaged in a wide range of research and development activities. He even co-founded a company that specialized in applying microfluidics for chemical analysis. And today, he's not going to talk about any of that. Instead, this conversation will be all about doing physics with phone sensors. Physics with Phones is a series of presentations outlining a wide range of experiments that are well aligned with the next generation science standards. These were developed for the classroom, but many can be done by students in their own homes. Dave, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks so much, Brad. I, I, I really cherish the opportunity to be on your podcast. I've listened to it so many times, and I've learned a tremendous amount from um, both you and your uh, distinguished um, guests that you had on the show. I'm relatively a novice to the um, uh, STEM education area, but I'm hoping that um, I can make a valuable contribution to um, helping students learn in this very technologically um, focused world that we live in today. Well, thank you for for sharing your sentiment about that. And uh, yeah, I mean, from what I've what I've already seen about some of your work, it, it's it looks like it's a great addition to the physics education community. But being a listener, you know what my first question is, other than the fact that I sent you the questions ahead of time. Uh, but I often like to start with a moment of gratitude. Who has been an important mentor in your life and career, and what role have they played in shaping your path? Well, so as you know. You know, our successes, our failures, you know, the opportunities that we have throughout our career are often, you know, created by um, the mentors we have and our colleagues. And, and I've been exceptionally fortunate throughout my life um, to that regard. But probably the person that really had the greatest initial impact was my um, undergraduate chemistry professor, who was also my research advisor. And, and that was Bert Holmes. He was a professor at Ohio Northern University. And, um, and he changed my perspective on science because um, what he did is instead of just doing these problems in the back of the book and solving problems that you know thousands of other students had solved before me, he introduced me to doing 
you know, experiments and discovering and doing research. And that really got me hooked as an experimental scientist in being able to actually contribute to the knowledge base um, that was out there. You know, Bert was also an extremely hard worker and that kind of rubbed off on me. I remember, you know, many nights sleeping in the laboratory collecting data. <laughs> And, um, you know, we won't promote that now. Um, it probably wasn't something yeah, that students were supposed to be doing at the time. Um, but, um, but that kind of set the stage for me to, um, for the rest of my career. I was able to publish four papers as an undergraduate. Um, and, um, and that allowed me to go on to do my graduate work at Stanford University with um, Professor Dick Zare. And he was really the next mentor in my career and, and Dick was this amazing professor that had a huge group. There were maybe 40 to 50 people in his group of postdocs and graduate students. Wow. And, you know, and I That's learned great. so much from every one of them. And I've really remained, you know, close to Dick and Bert all, all of these, all of these days. And then finally, you know, at the DOE National Labs, I've had so many amazing colleagues each one of them kind of steering me in a, a direction that, you know, stopping me from doing something stupid and, you know, saying, well, maybe you should think about this or that. And those things are so valuable over your, um, you know, over time to prevent you from going down a rabbit hole doing dumb stuff. And, mm -hmm. um, and so I've had, you know, so many people, you know, help me become successful over time. Mentioning the, the research experience, uh, it, it reminds me of Often what I can see on, and I think many of us are able to see in, in physics, student evaluations. If if we do a lot of lab work, the, the phrase hands-on comes up. And I, I think there's always so much appreciation for actually getting to do something and not just sit there and listen. And, and as as my listeners know, we, I'm, I'm always looking for, it's like, what are the things that we can do? Or not just that we can do, but that we can ask our students to do. Because when they're doing, then they're engaged. And, and I think that's when the best learning happens. It is. And, you know, in, in research experiences, undergraduates, you know, is quite valuable in doing that. But, you know, those are so difficult to give to everybody. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's some large amount. And so, you know, part of what we'll talk about today is, essentially giving that, you know, autonomy to do hands-on investigations and discovery, you know, in a more um, regular way as part of um, part of your classroom, you know, activities. And so, you know, I agree that that opportunity, it changes students' mentalities on how they approach um, science and how they become experts in, in their fields. So yeah, let's let's jump into this a little bit. Um, in in the introduction I, I had for you, I highlighted the various research labs that you've been part of, and uh, there's a lot of research development, application, and even national security in your background. Yet here I am talking to you about doing physics with phone sensors. So I have two related questions in mind that maybe they can't be separated. So you can take them one at a time. You can sort of take them together. So I, how did you get interested in education and why physics with phones? So if we separate these, maybe we could start with the first one. How did you get interested in the education side of things? So I guess I've always had an interest in teaching at colleges and universities. Um, that was always kind of in the back of my mind, something I might want to try to do. Um, and, um, and, I, and I've enjoyed giving lectures at you know, hundreds of universities all over the world um, over, the, um, over the decades. Mm -hmm. um, I even took a sabbatical while I was at Sandia, and I taught um, chemistry in the chemistry department at Stanford for a year. And I taught um, freshman analytical chemistry, physical chemistry, quantum mechanics, as well as a laser spectroscopy course for graduate students. Um, and, that, and I love that. But, um, but I kind of went back to work, and, and 20 years later, um, <laughs> You know, um, I was still doing work at the National Laboratories and uh, I, I snuck in a company um, in the middle of all that. <laughs> um, but um, is my children, and I had children kind of late in life, um, is my children were graduating from um, high school and going to college. I, I, came, I became critically aware of 
the need to improve science education in high schools. Hmm. What I saw was my kids were having to make decisions on their careers that were really going to help, you know, you know, to affect their trajectory. And, um, and while they had a very good support system and two parents that were, you know, technically oriented, very engaged in their education, mm -hmm. um, not every student had that. And what I saw was, you know, a poor teacher, okay, could, in a particular subject, could completely dismiss that as a, as a potential trajectory for that student. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was, you know, was, was an awful thing. Um, and so, so I could have just, I guess, whined about it more, um, <laughs> but, um, but, but I thought that I was at a point in my life and career where I could try to help make a difference. And so I decided I was going to um, try to um, try to teach uh, part-time and um, hmm. in, uh, in high school. Oh, and, okay. Wow. And, and, you know, both my family and my colleagues were, were shocked. Um, that that I was going to um, was going to do this. So that was in um, in 2018, and um, and being an educator for all of your life, like you have been, and you know many of your listeners, I went into this being pretty naive, right? You know, I mm. I I knew science, and I had been a practicing experimentalist and and had overseen large research groups, but you know. I didn't really know about teaching. And, um, and so I was, you know, that was something I was going to have to learn. And as I interviewed for these things, I, you know, one of the principals asked me, so, so how would you implement the next generation science standards? And, and I said, what? What? Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and so I eventually learned, oh, these next generation science standards were, were a lot about um, incorporating science and engineering practices is a, an equivalent important part of science education, not just, you know, the, the fundamental ideas and the disciplinary concepts. And I said, well, of course, that's the way you would teach science, right? That's the way we all do science in the real world. Well, of course, you would teach it that way. But I had no idea that there was a whole thing about that and that that was a change in mm. standard in a lot of our schools. So when I went to teach, I thought I was going to probably teach biology or chemistry because my degree, you know, I taught chemistry at Stanford. And one of the things that I've been doing a lot of was biology over the last 15 years. I was leading, mm. you know, biodefense programs at the laboratory. I had just got back from the White House and the Pentagon where I was briefing people on you know, national strategies for biodefense in the country. And, um, and I had, you know, this company that I started was essentially a biotech tools company, right? It was sold to all the drug manufacturers and biology groups around the world. And, um, but the principal says, you know, I don't think you could teach biology here because you don't have credentials. But, you know, here's these classes you took back at Stanford in the 1980s, oh my and they were physics classes. So you could probably teach physics. And so I said, well, okay, I'll give physics a try. And so that's how I got to be <laughs> te to teach physics. Mm -hmm. and, um, so you got started teaching, and then not too long later, all of a sudden, there was uh, a worldwide thing that happened. And that probably threw, you know, as you're getting started with teaching, probably throws throws a monkey wrench in the whole in the whole works. Is that so? Kind of moving into the, the idea of this physics with phones and how this project came about. Is this is this something you were interested in already, or did this really kind of uh, emerge as we, you know, everybody had to go home and teachers had to teach from home? Yeah. So so interestingly, it it had nothing to do with the pandemic and having to teach at home because mm -hmm. I started in eighteen. Okay. And okay. I taught 1819. So that was the year that I taught um, with a, my year of high school. Okay. And during that time, I did what I've always done in my career, which is I dove into trying to understand the discipline, what people were doing, how I could make it better. And I, you know, read, you know, and studied, you know, what people were doing. And I saw 
that some of these people, some people had published papers and there was some really interesting things that you could potentially do with phone sensors. And I started incorporating some of those into my classroom. And what I realized was these were really powerful mm -hmm. and they really gave students advocacy in designing and carrying out and seeing things and, and doing what real scientists do with um, data. And the data was really good, okay, because these sensors were really powerful. As an indicator of the success, I would tell you, because you have a lot of uh, teachers here um, that listen to your program, I had like probably 25% of the parents in, of the students that I had in the class write me after the class was over, mm -hmm. telling me what a wonderful experience their kids had had um, in the physics class. Oh, you know? that's, that's so great to hear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so this was, so, so what I felt was this is really remarkable. And I came back to the lab and I said, rather than say teaching, what I'd like to do is really explore the potential of this to have a greater impact. Mm -hmm. And the laboratory gave me the opportunity to, to do that. And so I came back to the lab full time starting in the fall of 2019 and started to work on um, these experiments, which I was focused on, you know, the properties that they had just generically as being this phenomenal, you know, change in how we could, you know, do science and teach science. And, um, and it just turns out that the next, after the Christmas, you know, in the coming spring, um, there was this great demand for things that, mm -hmm. you know, could be done outside. So it was completely fortuitous that I had, you know, that this now could also serve that need um, that people were having. And so, so that was, it was not driven by that at all. Turned out that it helped the adapt, the adoption of it um, early on. Mm -hmm. No, it, it's, it's great when you have some of those resources that you know happen before they're really needed and uh and then they they're available and that helps with the the adoption so you know and and i've been aware of devices that you can use for this so um maybe five or six years ago there was this uh i i was introduced to this io lab uh which was right um this this io lab which is uh, it's not for your phone. Instead, it was a device that was basically phone size that you can purchase. And I think they were around $100. Uh, I'm sure those, those devices are are still out there. And, and I think they're being used a lot for, for online classes. So I'm sure that got uh, a, a lot of um, demand. But this is one of these where I hadn't thought as much about the phone sensors. And I, I think it's because this phone technology has come on so rapidly. You know, it's it's funny. Like when I started teaching after my PhD in 2010, when we did video analysis, we used the 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 cameras that were on the computer screens in our classroom because nobody had devices in their pocket. Within about two to three years, I could count on at least one student in the classroom having a device in their pocket uh, that they could record videos with. And then another three to four years later, everybody had it, and we never needed to use the computer uh, video camera anymore. So that, that's just that's just one example, but. You know, just the video itself, I know, is not not really the main tool that we're thinking of here. So, but how do we access our phone's ability to sense? What are some of the the apps that you use to do these activities? Uh, for instance, I know of two, Firefox and Physics Toolbox, and those are all my list of uh, people to talk to <laughs> for for the show. Are these ones that you use, and and what apps have you been working with, and what are their capabilities? When you talk to you know, most teachers about using their phones, video is the thing that's been used um, the most. And, and while that's powerful, it's just one of so many things that can be, um, can be valuable to use. So we'll go through those. But yeah, so Firefox and Physics Toolbox are both great uh, applications. They're um, what I would call these kind of multi-sensor applications where they have kind of a single, you know, application that allows you to access a number of the sensors that are in your phones and provides mm -hmm. kind of associated tools 
and analysis and graphical capabilities that go along with them. And those are a key to, those were both key to um, me in being able to implement it in the classroom, right? Because it's it's having that easy tool, you know, that allows you to then think about all these wonderful experiments that you can do, you yeah. know, but those tools have to be there to start with. And and I particularly like, I think they call it FeeFox, but I always oh, call okay. it FiFox. But I think the, the uh, developers call it FeeFox um, is... I, I find that it's a just a remarkable tool. I thank those guys so much for what they've developed for this tool. So so we use that a lot. And what's what's amazing, right, is that you know that app's being developed. But as you were talking about all these improvements, and and we're at this point where companies, some of the most the wealthiest companies in the world, are investing hundreds of billions of dollars a year in advancing this technology, mm -hmm. okay? And we've never been in a place where there's this dual use, okay, for education, for something that's getting hundreds of billions of mm -hmm. dollars of investment a year to make sure these things are spectacular. And that's why things like the tool that you mentioned to start with have really fallen behind in what it's possible, right? So while that was kind of a cool you know, a little, you know, specialized box for education, you know, it can't compare to what can be done with the phones now in terms of the sensitivity, the dynamic range, the, the graphical capabilities. I mean, these other tools mm -hmm. are just so much better. Mm -hmm. And essentially they're there for free. Yeah. It's, it's funny when you think of it, it here we have it's really a 600, 700, who knows how many hundreds of dollar device that we have in our hands that can do so much. And we basically get to assume that just about every student walks into the classroom with one because they're, they're almost, it's almost impossible to be in this society without one now, I guess. <laughs> right. And, and the thing is, even if you didn't, you know, like I say, you know, the devices that were built um, four years ago are still incredible. Okay. And those you can mm -hmm. buy for, like I say, 50, 60 bucks, you know, and um, yeah, and they're, they're, they're better than the sensors that, you know, they're using at the top universities in the country right now, you know, in mm -hmm. their, um, in their laboratories. Yeah. Um, I guess I should make actually one quick amendment to my statement and then we'll, then we'll move on with the next question. You know, I can probably assume that in most schools in the U S these devices are, are probably in everybody's hands, um, which of course is not universal. But I, from from looking at my podcast listenership, I can see there are other countries where people are listening to this show, and I absolutely can't make that. I, I can make zero assumptions about what happens in other countries and if those those tools are are available. So that um, I want to amend. I want to amend my statement. Although I think you'll find that students in almost every country, uh, you know, in large numbers of locations around the world have access to phones. There may not be mm -hmm. as great a percentage um, in every country, but um, but those phones are still, you know, very much available. So I'm always about the nuts and, and the bolts. It's okay. like, what yes. does it actually look like to, to do right. something like this? Um, so let, let, let's get some concrete examples. I want to yeah. talk about a few of the activities that are included well, on the Physics with Phones website through the Lawrence Livermore National Lab. And I'm going to definitely make sure I get uh, um, a link to that website in, in my show notes. So maybe we can we can just kind of run run through a couple examples from across the, the spectrum of some of the typical things that teachers might teach. So we could take one from mechanics. We could take something from waves and fluids. And we could take another from, say, electricity and magnetism. So just kind of maybe one out of each of those categories, and you can talk a little bit about what what an experiment might look like or what kind of an activity might look like. So so Brad, before I before I do that, mm -hmm. um, would it be, you know, and I don't know that you have time for this in in your podcast, um, but um it might be nice just to run through all the sensors you know, first and what's, and just give you a real simple explanation of what can be done with each of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what? And let's, then, let's do that. And, because then I jump, don't... and then jump to the specific, some specific, 
you know, more details on some specific experiments. Would that mm -hmm. be okay? No, that sounds that sounds great because I I don't know all the capabilities that the phone has for for measurements. So I'd I'd love to hear that too. So let's yeah, yeah, let's think, start there. Yeah, let's start there. So um so so let me march through a bunch of the sensors and tell you just an example of like something you might be able to do with it. Okay. Mm -hmm. The first is um, there's a three-axis accelerometer which measures the acceleration along the X, Y, and Z axis of your phone. And once you have the acceleration, you can calculate the velocity and displacement, okay? Mm -hmm. the, the reason it was put in phones originally was it also measures the orientation of your phone because um, it measures gravity. And so it can go from landscape to portrait mode when you turn your phone and you're looking at um, a picture, for example. Ah, uh, yes. Okay? okay. Once it was in there, people did all sorts of other things with it. And one of those, many of your listeners will use quite frequently. I use it when I walk for your and listen to your podcast, which is <laughs> it measures my motion during exercise. And it will tell me, you know, how many steps I took, for example, um, during my um, during my walk. Right. And, um, and the more sophisticated ones now will tell you whether you're riding a bicycle or you were um, playing tennis or whatever, oh gosh. because yeah. um, it can look at your motion and movements. The sensitivity of these things are remarkable. So one of the, one of the students that I worked as summer interns, they, um, they did work characterizing the heartbeat and you can study the cardiac cycle um, with this, and you can see the individual vibrations associated with like the opening of the mitral and the aortic valves in your heart, you know, the contraction of the, the oh atria gosh. and um, the ventricles, um, you know, the peak systolic blood flow. And it's, it's absolutely unremarkable. In fact, I diagnosed myself um, for the first time with AFib. I'm using my phone when I was trying to make a bunch of measurements and all of a sudden it didn't look like it was, had looked like last time I looked at it. Mm -hmm. Now, um, how is it doing that, that measurement? It, it, because you're not hooking electrodes up to yourself, right? Is no, it, it's measuring the vibration. Just, so I just lay my phone on my chest and I collect, I collect the vibration data and essentially the small amounts of vibration from my, my heart, from the cardiac cycle, all of those things I just mentioned you know, create separate vibrations that the phone will, the accelerometer will pick up along the various different axes, and you can correlate them with those individual events of the heart. Mm -hmm. It's it's absolutely wow. remarkable. Wow, that's awesome. So so that's the accelerometer. So then you got the gyroscope, okay? And the gyroscope is going to precisely measure rotation around those three axes. And so, you know, one of the applications that the phones use that for is um, when you're taking pictures. So when you take a picture, your hands tend to vibrate some. You know, you have this control loop going back from your brain to your muscles, trying to hold your phone as stable as it can, but, but there's jitter in it, okay? And your phone is rotating slightly. So the, the gyroscope measures that rotation, feeds that information back to little actuators that either move the sensor or the lens on your camera so that when you take your picture and do an exposure over many, many little vibrations um, or rotations of your, your hands, it corrects for those and you get this beautiful, clear, you know, picture. So, so what that does is the gyroscope opens up all sorts of really interesting things to measure um, rotational motion in the physics classroom. It's, um, it's quite spectacular. I, I love this getting a little sneak peek into why the phone is able to, you know, why it has particular sensors. And that then basically we use these, these apps to hack into that and just take our own measurements out of it for physics experiments. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, it, it is cool, right? Because, you know, they, the developers had these very specific things they want to do. But as it turns out, these are then open the door for us to do this amazing number of other physics experiments and demonstrate phenomena and, and look for really unique things. And, you know, and so somebody in your class in your physics alive group that, um, you know, wants to, you know, look at, you know, human tremors and the effect of, you know, neurological diseases can use this to study them mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. measure them 
um, vary uh, and measure the effects of different, um, you know, maybe when you drink too much coffee in the morning, how much more your, your hand is vibrating uh -huh. when you um, <laughs> hold your cup of coffee. All right, right, what do we got next? So the next sensor is the magnetometer and there's a three axis magnetometer and it's measuring, it's a, basically a hall sensor that measures um, the magnetic presence of magnetic fields. And so you can do things like, you know, study the Earth's magnetic field and understand the, the um, components of the Earth's magnetic field. And, and that's a, an example we'll get into a little bit more in a minute of um, where we're going to, I'll talk to you about how we can make a measurement on, um, for magnetic storage. There's also a pressure transducer that measures slow changes in um, atmospheric pressure. And um, students and, you know, and all of my nerd friends, you know, find it absolutely amazing that you can measure the pressure difference between your desktop and the floor of your office mm. and have a factor of a signal to noise of 10 in making that measurement. Wow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, and you can use this to measure the density of air to three significant figures. And there's a tremendous amount of really interesting things you can do in precision and accuracy. And in fact, you can introduce controls in this because the, the, the pressure in your environment is changing quite quite substantially, even though you don't know it. And your phones will measure, and you can see that on multiple phones simultaneously as your, as your pressure changes. And I can now make a measurement where I want to see the change in pressure as a function of altitude, okay? And I can leave one phone at one altitude, move one phone up and down, and I can subtract out any changes from the background. And this allows you to introduce the idea of controls hmm. into an experimental design in a way that's super powerful and very easy um, for people to do in a quantitative way. So then, so then you got your microphone, okay? So your microphone mm -hmm. is also making pressure measurements, but it's not making them at high frequency. So your microphone's making measurements at 48,000 points per second, okay? So it's measuring the pressure at that particular location at the microphone 48,000 times per second, and it's doing that to characterize sound waves. And this now allows students to look at and study the details of sound waves. So, so the first thing I always have them do is I have them whistle. And when they whistle, it turns out your mouth is a Helmholtz resonator, produces mm -hmm. a relatively single frequency you know, sound wave. Mm -hmm. And that becomes this beautiful sine wave uh, of pressure yes. going up and down. So you can physically see the, the compression, rarefraction, compression, rarefraction, and the timing that is between each individual, you know, crest and um, peak and wave. Yeah, and, and, so, and here's the thing. It's like, you know, talking about an experiment like that and, and talking about, you know, the pressure measurements, I, I have had sensors in my classroom from, you know, Vernier or, or Pasco, where you get one sensor, you can measure sound waves, and I can do exactly the same thing. I get another sensor, I can measure, I can measure pressure, I can get exactly the same thing you're talking about. But here, here we have a single device that allows us to access all of those, all of those measurements. And you wouldn't necessarily, it's like, oh, my lab doesn't, doesn't have pressure sensors. Oh, that's fine. It's like, we'll just, we'll just use our phones. I don't have to go and spend you know, a thousand dollars to outfit the classroom with these sensors. So next, um, GPS. Okay. So GPS allows us to precisely measure our position anywhere on the earth. Okay. You can measure that with your phone to about a meter um, very accurately. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so this opens up this whole new opportunity to do position versus time measurements. And so we get the students to walk out on the football field you know, you walk the length of the football field, you collect GPS measurements on your walk, and you know exactly how fast you're walking, what position you are at every position, at every point in time. And you're doing that, you know, not by some, you know, kind of um, boring, you know, measurement of, you know, stopwatch distance that you've measured out. Mm -hmm. You know, you're doing it by using the microwave signals from four satellites that are traveling wow. above yeah. you in space. Um, to determine what your position is. So this is a really, this is one of those experiments you do initially 
you know, one of the first experiments you do in introductory physics, right, is position versus time in mm -hmm. mechanics, right? Yep. And it's kind of boring, okay, to be honest. And and now you make it so much more interesting because you're using all this other amazing physics to actually make the measurement. And the students are seeing their latitude, longitude positions plotted out immediately on their phones as they walk. And they can convert that into position versus time data and then understand how that position versus time slope turns into velocity. And um, and they all, you know, and it's super precise um, on their phones. You know, the the modeling physics community and there may be other communities uh, are so into the tumble buggy as the starting lab for the modeling physics curriculum and, you know, getting the timers and the meter sticks into, into students' hands and mapping out the tumble buggy. I, I'm challenging myself now that I hear this and challenging the rest of the community to think about like, what if we, what if the human is the tumble buggy? Now, <laughs> maybe the trouble is we can't control if we're a constant velocity person uh, as we're walking across the field. But uh, at the very least, uh, I see in modeling curriculum ideas, the deployment activity could come off of that. But we could even replace that if, if we can get somebody to walk somewhat consistently across a field. It's like we we could use that as the data and you can still run through a lab in, in this style the same way. But now the data comes from you over, you know, 100 meters, for instance, instead yeah. of two or three meters. Brad, you'll be surprised to see that the data turns out remarkably well for constant velocity, actually better than mm -hmm. I've seen doing these cars that are supposed to move at constant velocity <laughs> and the errors on the measurements. Because um, what I do is I have students walk it, then I have them jog it, and then I have them run it. Mm -hmm. And you get three lines, okay, at different slopes that look perfect. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's really... Um, quite astounding. So um, it works really nice. So let's see, sorry. Um, so then there's, you know, you have, you talked about the video cameras. I mean, these, these CMOS chips sensors that are in our cameras are amazingly powerful optical detectors. You know, uh, they give us lots of insight into studying, you know, light and um, their properties and the filters that are on them to separate out different frequencies. So there's a tremendous amount that can be done with that. Um, you know, the computational power that we have um, in these things are, are just remarkable. So the A15 bionic processor that's in the new iPhones, it has 15 billion transistors, you know, made with, you know, five nanometer lithography technology. It's unbelievable, you know, then hmm. the real-time computational power that you have to now do all this analysis. And we'll see these kind of things like things with, you know, doing fast Fourier transform of the of the 48,000 points per second data that we're having, mm -hmm. taking, you know, if we're doing things like voice recognition and those kind of things, right? That you can have your students start to explore and investigate. The the flat panel displays for our phones, right? Those become light sources, right? And they can be used for, you know, for studying light and producing light and understanding, you know, um, the properties of light. So have you ever done the colored shadows experiment or seen it done in like a- mm, I, uh, I've heard of it. I haven't, I haven't done it myself though. So, so basically you take light sources like red, blue, and green, and you put a shadow, or you put something to create a shadow. And mm -hmm. what you can see is color by addition. And it's a beautiful, wonderful kind of way of showing how light adds and we can detect different colors. Okay, we see different colors and that's how displays work, right? By combining different colors together and our eyes perceive those different colors, right? So the students can now create different colors, you know, create light sources on their phone by creating like a PowerPoint slide that has a white, uh, a red stripe, a blue stripe and a, uh -huh. and a green stripe, right? And they, that's their light source. And they can now see how those different colors add, you know, when the shadow is in front of them and where it blocks out one of the light sources and the other two combine to form a, a color. Uh -huh. And they huh. can do that with all sorts oh, wow. of different colors. So it's it's really quite um, a beautiful way of showing, you know, light by addition. Just a couple more, right? So you have the touchscreen, which is another sensor. It's got thousands of mm. capacitors on it that are basically measuring, you know, when your finger gets close to it, it basically starts pulling away um, electrons. 
And, um, you know, it's an electron sink and it changes the time that those capacitors charge up and it can tell where you touch on the screen. Mm -hmm. So when Steve Jobs introduced the multi-touch iPhone in 2007, right, it changed the trajectory of how we interacted with, you know, electronics. And based on basically transparent electrodes creating little capacitors on the, you know, top of our, our displays, which, you know, can now help us teach about charge, conductivity, conductance. Mm-hmm. And um, you can investigate those. Then we have antennas that can detect, you know, all the, you know, our Wi-Fi and Bluetooth are detecting microwaves. And so we can do all sorts of experiments on microwaves. I use a cookie cooling rack, which has basically an array of wires mm-hmm. to show how you can use those to be to study the polarization properties of microwaves. So I can have my router antenna, you know, with the electrons oscillating up and down, creating electromagnetic wave with a certain polarization. And as I rotate my cookie cooling rack, I can show how it absorbs the microwaves. Oh, wow. Um, coming, um, <laughs> coming from my antenna. Uh-huh. Right? So all with the phone. Finally, you have every student is an expert user of your device. You don't have to spend a bunch of time <laughs> teaching them how to use this or that, right? They all they all just dive right in and use it and figure it out. And, um, and it's so simple for them to use. That's a taste of what all these sensors can do. Oh my gosh. That's, uh, yeah, the technology is just, it's just amazing. I could just kind of gush for it's like, how, how cool, you know, I want to, I want to nerd out on this now. And, um, so, so I can point, I can point, uh, our listeners to the website where basically you have lots of activities. You can pick, you can pick any, any particular topic that you see there and you click on that and you'll go and you'll see multiple, um, word documents that, that you've put together that, that kind of lead, can lead people through these experiments. So, you know, it sounds like, I, I don't know if there's like a particular one of those you'd like to, to talk about. Um, cause it sounds like you've kind of introduced a lot of the types of experiments you might be able to do and, and people mm-hmm. can, can go and they can, they can check that out. I don't know if you want to say more about, you know, what, what they'll find when they, they go and they download one of those activities. The activities are, um, are done in a way, and I'm still trying to explore what the best way to help teachers is, but the way it is now is there'll be a description of the general activity of what what it is that we're going to do, and then it'll be followed by um, essentially a bunch of data slides that show what the data looks like from Mm -hmm. the experiments, and they are typically both the data, pictures of the data that comes right off your phone and data that's been exported off your phone to an external file for analysis. And what I have is the, I have the embedded spreadsheets in the graph. So if you click on the graph, you'll, you can pull up the spreadsheet that has all the raw data in it and all the analysis has been done on the data. And then there's notes on each of the pages to describe, you know, what, what was done. So the intent is to really have a, an in-depth opportunity to understand and see what the data looks like. Here's you know some examples of here's what data looks like that might not be quite what you want it to look like, and here's why it might look like that. So here's how you could correct things for students. So that's so that's what they'll find, and um, and I can give you an example of like one of the experiments, a simple one for mechanics that will be something that people are familiar with. So almost everybody will. You know, a lot of people measure kinetic friction in a laboratory, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so here's a simple experiment that I did with students on kinetic friction that works really, really nicely. So you basically take your phone and you take um, about four rubber bands and I daisy chain those rubber bands together to give me kind of a long elastomer. Okay, so now I have a long stretchy rubber band by combining four rubber bands together and I attach it to the phone. Okay, and there are different ways you can attach it to your phone that are pretty simple, right? And so then what I do is I I lay the phone on the ground, uh, on a table, for example. I pull it back a little bit and so that the elastomer is stretched a little bit, let the phone go, 
-hmm. The elastomer starts to accelerate the phone on the surface. Once the phone gets to its kind of equilibrium position, okay, the phone has momentum and it continues to slide across the table until it comes to a stop. Sounds like a pretty exciting experiment, right? Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> a pretty dangerous experiment if you're doing it on a tabletop and you launch it a little too hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it, the, the trick is it doesn't have to go very far at all. Okay. Okay. okay? And um, so, you know, it slides, you know, 10 centimeters or something, right? Um, 20 centimeters. You know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty small slide. Okay. And so, but what's cool is that once it once the elastomer has provided that initial acceleration and now the phone is just sliding across the table okay in a controlled way part of the reason for the elastomer is you get this nice controlled ex initial acceleration mm -hmm. you can talk about those forces what's involved with it but then once it stop once the elastomer is back to its equilibrium position the only force acting on the phone now is kinetic friction mm -hmm. and so it's a constant force creating a constant acceleration until the phone comes to an abrupt stop. And so what you see on your data, on your measurement of the acceleration, is this very flat line, okay, where the acceleration is 1.73 meters per, you know, a centimeter meters per second squared, for example, right? So what you see is the phone sliding across there at this constant acceleration that'll have a specific value. And from that, you can calculate what the coefficient of um, kinetic friction is. And it really is this beautiful example of Newton's second law of F equals MA and how an object behaves under a constant force, providing a constant acceleration, which ultimately then gets tied back to um, the force of kinetic friction. And now you can you know, now you can put a piece of paper on the desktop instead, or a piece of wax paper, or do it across glass, or you can, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. you can change that really quickly and look at the changes in kinetic friction for a number of different situations. So this is something that I did with my students, and um, it's going to be coming out, a paper on this is coming out in the physics teacher in the next um, few months. Oh, great. Okay. Um, and that data, once you get that acceleration data, students can then do point-by-point -point calculations of what the velocity is and what the displacement is of the phone. And that acceleration data is so accurate that you get exceptionally good data on it. Hmm. So that was that's one of the remarkable things that I did. And I thought, oh, this looks kind of noisy and there's kind of, you know, kind of fluctuations in this, but it's all real. And it's all very precise. And so now I can do kind of individual point by point integration by taking the measured acceleration, multiplying it by the increment of time to get the velocity out, the change in velocity for every single point of the measurement. And by mm -hmm. adding those up over the course of the experiment, I can, you know, see what the velocity, how the velocity changes and how the displacement changes of the phone. And it's, mm -hmm. a, you know, it's quite a remarkable experiment. Oh, that's so great. So I can provide the link to send people to the website and they can check out all of those experiments, but probably more fun if people have an opportunity is to get to uh, get together with fellow educators and and work through some of these. So I, I know that you've been offering workshops and presentations, so I'd love for you to share a little bit about that and where folks can go to learn more about how they might be able to attend one of those. What Livermore has done for a few decades is, is provide workshops for teachers over the summer. They do that in a variety of different topics. You know, there's some that are on 3D printing, on climate science, on fusion energy and astrophysics and a variety of other things. The last few years, I've been doing one on this physics with phones. And um, it's a free workshop that teachers can sign up for. I've offered two of them at different times the last um, several summers. They're, they're pretty extensive. Um, we do six hours a day for five days. Oh, so wow. A total of okay. 30 hours. Um, teachers can get 
um, continuing education credit for it if they want to. The, class, the workshop is free. I send them kits um, in the mail, which they can use that has a, some items in it, like, you know, like the rubber bands and string and wires and magnets and straws and golf balls and <laughs> some measurement devices. And, you know, is a, you know, about 15 different little items that allow them to do the experiments. And then we do it virtually. Even with that 30 hours, we only get through a small fraction of the material mm -hmm. that's on mm -hmm. those web pages. I, I don't mean to scare you and your listeners, but there's, <laughs> there's like 2,500 pages of um, material there that I've developed over the last couple of years. And, um, and so it's, you know, that there's a lot of, um, a lot of information, a lot of really cool experiments. And, um, and I think, you know, that I've only tapped the, begun to tap into um, some of the things that are that are possible. And I know I've talked about it on the show before about these immersive experiences as being, I think being a place where where you get lasting change because now you have a cohort of people doing the same thing together and and you're working through experiments yourself. You're having conversations about that. And when you've actually done the things yourself, that makes it now so much easier to bring into the classroom because it's not, it's not theoretical what it looks like. It's like you haven't read it and now it's in your mind what it could look like. And eh, well, maybe I won't actually get a chance to do that. But if you've done it yourself now, it's like, oh, I know what that looks like. I see what the problems are. You know, I, I see where I made mistakes, where students can make mistakes, and it's so much easier to then bring it into the classroom. So uh, so that that sounds like just an awesome opportunity. So I, I think we've, we've been able to summarize and, and talk about a lot of this. And I, I'm, uh, I'd like to give you a chance to share some final thoughts about your physics with phones work and what hopes you have for, for the future. We talked a lot about all the kind of really amazing experiments that can be done and the technology. Um, there's a few other things that are kind of really important for this approach that I think are, they're worth highlighting. Um, one is that, and we, we touched this a little bit, but teachers oftentimes have challenges with limited amounts of equipment. And so we'll have a piece of equipment or several pieces of equipment, and we'll have to put students in fairly large groups. They'll, and they, inevitably several students will sit around watching, right? And you're trying mm -hmm. to figure out how do we get everybody engaged, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, and, and oftentimes, you know, maybe the equipment's older, it's not work, you know, not every piece is working like it's supposed to. Um, so those are always challenges. Well, this approach kind of gets around that because in you can either have groups of two or groups of one, you know, and you can, it, it changes the dynamic dramatically of how you, you know, how students interact and do the work because they're all kind of doing stuff independently, okay? And they can still interact with each other and share, here's what I saw, here's what I saw, but they all have their own piece of equipment. They're all doing the experiments kind of independently. Mm -hmm. And the learning that comes from that is so much more powerful, I think, than when you have to sit around and only one person is getting to touch the device that, yeah, you know, yeah. and everybody else is watching, right? So I think that that is um, that's something that's really important um, to note about this approach. The second is that um, students can do these things outside the classroom. Yes, right? so that was the other can, one I was just thinking about. <laughs> so you can assign, you know, activities and preliminary things or extensions of activities, and it doesn't all have to be done you know, with that controlled piece of equipment in the classroom, right? So, you know, whereas you may say, you know, I wish when I do homework or reading, you know, now I can actually assign this hands-on, interactive, diary-based activities, and I can have them do that outside. And we all know that, you know, physics education research has shown us how much more powerful that is um, for the students when they're learning that way. And now you have a mechanism to, to do that in a, in a new way because they have these remarkable tools with them all the time. Yeah, first of all, the, the homework, you know, instead of the students sitting in their room working on problems, uh, you, know, you send them outside to do some kind of ac activity. First of all, that, that makes 
the homework seemed that much more interesting. And then I'm just, I'm just thinking of sending my students out on, on a college campus and they're roaming about with their phones and their friends ask, what are you doing? And then they say, it's like, this is my physics homework. And all of a sudden now physics takes on this, this new meaning <laughs> to, to other people around campus. Yeah, it'll be great when you sign them rotational and centripetal acceleration experiments and they're out in the quad spinning around in circles, you know, <laughs> measuring their angular velocities and the relationship to the centripetal mm -hmm. acceleration, right? So um, these are these are great. I did this yesterday in my one of my workshops and, you know, it is so much fun. Everybody's sitting there spinning, getting dizzy and, um, you know, uh, very engaging. And just to make sure the students are doing it in public, you have to say, if you take a selfie with yourself in a public spot, you know, you'll get an extra point or something like that. <laughs> exactly. There you go. And then, then finally, the thing that is, is also really um, important is that as we talked, it's almost, almost every student in this country, at least, has a smartphone re regardless of their social economic background. The additional equipment that you need to do a whole year's worth of physics experiments could be nothing, or if you wanted to be, really go all in, you could spend 10 bucks on it, okay? Mm. <laughs> and and it, it will enable experiments that are better than are being done at the best universities right now. These applications are all free. All this material describing it is all free. You don't have to put in registration numbers, you just go there, you download mm -hmm. it, you get it. And um, which makes this accessible to everybody, right? We're spent, we, there's a lot of dialogue going on about how do we bring equity to, you know, yeah. education? How do we give equal opportunities? And so many of them are expensive and things that we're just, are gonna be so hard to do, right? Because the resources just aren't there. So here's something that is, it's not only bringing people up to, you know, an equal position, it's, it's elevating everybody to a level that was unprecedented, you know, historically, in terms of what's possible for them to learn, and every single person can do it. Um, yeah, this so, is, uh, I mean, such, I think it's such important, this is definitely such important work. Um, Dave, I know you've been saying that you've been, you know, the, in research for most of the time, you've only kind of dabbled in teaching here and there. Uh, but you've you've definitely got, I don't know, kind of hit the nail on the head of the the pulse of education. And you're doing, you're really doing something great here. And, uh, and you're you're asking the, the right questions and, and taking this the right direction and, and trying to make this available for 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 everyone for for education. So, you know, thank you so much for speaking with me today for for sharing this project that you're working on and may may the lab keep giving you the the resources and time to to keep to keep working on this. Thank you very much, Brad. I, I really appreciate it. I know that I'm probably the greatest novice that you've ever had on your <laughs> program. Um, I appreciate the opportunity that you gave me to share what I'm doing in you know, I really would love to work with people that have more experience to try to help um, this material and this approach have a greater impact on students in the future. So I hope that this will lead to, to other things. Wow, wow, wow. The technology in our pockets is simply amazing. It's one of these things where I've thought about using my phone as a sensor. I've even downloaded some of these apps before to to check them out. But you know, with with having equipment in my own lab, I haven't really had to rely on them. But there's there's times when I think it's like, oh, I want to be able to do this type of experiment. We don't have that equipment. Gee, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to buy that and uh, and and get it shipped here and see if it can fit into our budget. But that's not always the question I need to be asking. A lot of times, I mean, this sensor in our pockets might well be able to might well be able to do these experiments. Uh, so like the the richness that is is available here, the the power of this tool. It's something I really just have greatly underappreciated, and I, I really enjoyed this conversation for getting a chance to kind of dive in and think about the types of sensors that are available, about the the apps that are working with that, and um, the the promise that this 
that this has for the types of measurements that we can do. You can find links to the websites about physics with phones in the show notes, or you can go to the web link for this episode, physicsalive.com slash phones. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates and be part of the conversation on Twitter at Physics Alive, or leave a comment on the episode page, physicsalive.com slash phones. If you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star rating and a written review on your podcast app. This helps crack the show into the algorithm and find its way into searches, but I think word of mouth is even better. Share this podcast with a fellow educator who might find it helpful. If your resources permit, I invite you to be a patron of the show. Membership levels start at $2 per month, and your support helps to pay for upkeep fees such as web host fees, podcast host fees, and equipment upgrades. And with enough support, I'll be able to get some editing help, which would allow me to produce more episodes each month. Editing is definitely the bottleneck to getting episodes out. So if you can help support the show, then please go to patreon.com slash physicsalive. Thanks again for listening in. Our phones are a powerful tool that many of us are probably underutilizing. If you have a small operating budget, then these experiments can open up your class to high quality measurements. Even with a big budget, the opportunity for students to do measurements in the physical classroom space or at home with their phones is one that we should jump on. Please join me again for the next episode. Until then, may you ever strive to bring physics alive and be well.